Welcome, you happy warriors, to today's show entitled The Main Thing is That the Main Thing Remains the Main Thing. And uh, one of the things <laughs> that I want to tell you about is, well, let me start off by telling you that I am preparing the show for you um, in the middle of April 2021. And I'm telling you that so you're able to date certain events that I think that you ought to know about. But here's the key thing. This is not a political show. Okay, This is a show about personal development. However, learning from history and from the conduct of nations is really useful or can be really useful. So let me give you an example first before I move to the question of China, Taiwan, and what that means for your life. Uh, let me give you an example from an earlier period of history. Uh, we're talking about the, second, the First World War. First World War ends in uh, November uh, 1918, and it was terrible. Um, the massacres in the trenches was absolutely appalling. Um, there was an entire generation of young men wiped out in France and in England, um, so much so that I saw a, a poignant speech given by the principal of a girls' high school uh, in 1918 when she spoke to the girls, and she said, uh, uh, ladies, uh, look around you. One out of every two of you will not find a husband. You will not get married. And, and this was due to a generation that had been wiped out in the senseless massacre of the trench warfare of World War I. So the war ends in November 1918. Uh, July 1919, right, it's only eight months after the guns fell silent, um, comes the Treaty of Versailles, uh, we, uh, where, where there were tremendous um, penalties and reparation payments imposed on a defeated Germany. Um, Germany was a, uh, they had no choice, they had surrendered, they were utterly defeated, and they had a sign, but they, they were very unhappy about it, and in true Germanic fashion, fashion uh, the um, German delegation to the uh, peace conference of Versailles, uh, stood up after signing the, the document and took the pen and snapped it in two and dropped the pieces on the table. And um, I think one of the most disturbing aspects to Germany of the Treaty of Versailles was that uh, Germany basically was no longer able to exert control or have any military forces in a part of Germany called the Rhineland, an area along the River Rhine and the west of the River Rhine in western Germany. And the reason that uh, France and England um, basically prevented um, Germany from exercising its sovereignty over that part of Germany was that that was the, um, the crucible of German industry along the Rhine River. And to this day, by the way, it's, it's still true. If you take a boat along the Rhine River, 
throughout Germany, you're basically traveling alongside factories and industrial areas because the Rhine was this main uh, transportation corridor. So the coal industry and the steel making industry, all of that is there. And needless to say, uh, the capacity to build armaments. And because uh, World War I ended in France and Belgium remained frightened of Germany, England also somewhat um, nervous about Germany rising again, they decided to try and make that impossible. And, um, and so the Allies controlled the Rhineland. No factories were allowed to produce armaments of any kind, and even steel manufacture was regulated. So that was July 1919, just after World War II, World War One ends. Um, six years later, it's 1925, there was a European peace conference held in Switzerland. It was called the Locarno um, Pact, and uh, it basically reaffirmed everything that was decided six years earlier at the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, but above all, it allowed Germany entry into the forerunner of what was going to be the United Nations. It was called the League of Nations back then. And uh, this was now going to sort of introduce this new era of uh, peace and prosperity for, for Europe. No more war. That was 1925. By 1930, uh, Germany had succeeded in making um, the Allies withdraw all their troops from the Rhineland, right? Up till then, the uh, Allies had placed a certain number of observational troops in the Rhineland um, to make sure that Germany did not re-enter and uh, re-exert um, sovereignty over the Rhineland. So, um, so uh, 1930, they managed to persuade England and France to sort of pull out and just sort of rely on German goodwill. Um, I don't remember the exact date, but about four years later, somewhere around about 1934, uh, Hitler and the Nazi party seized total control in Germany. They won the elections. They were in charge of everything. And, um, and now what happens? Okay, that's about 1934. And now um, Hitler announces and tells his Wehrmacht that he intends retaking the Rhineland because he wants to rearm Germany and rebuild Germany, which he can't do if they do not have access to the Rhineland. And so he plans to do that. Most of his Wehrmacht, most of his general officer staff uh, told him, don't do it. Why? Because Germany didn't have enough of an army left in the aftermath of World War I uh, to to perform a, uh, a, a convincing re-seizure of the Rhineland. And they all knew that uh, England, Belgium, France had huge forces massed, about 300,000 men or more um, on the French-German border, ready to march in at, at any point. And um, it was so clear, it was so recent still, the Treaty of Versailles and the Treaty of Locarno, it was so clear that Germany was absolutely not going to be allowed to re-enter the Rhineland. Um, 
And they kept on saying to Hitler, look, this isn't any good. You do it. They're going to march in. They're going to throw us out. It's going to be a huge embarrassment for the Nazi party. You will have to resign. You will no longer be able to be chancellor of Germany. And that'll be the end of all our hopes for, uh, for Germany. Hitler basically ignored them. And on uh, early in the morning on Saturday, March the 7th in 1936, Okay, so again, the key dates, the war ends in November uh, 1918, um, 1919, middle of 1919, the Versailles Treaty, 1925, the Locarno Treaty in Germany and the League of Nations, 1930, Allied forces out of the Rhineland, it's now empty, 1934, uh, Hitler and the Nazis take control, and 1936, March 7th, 1936, 19 German infantry battalions uh, enter the Rhineland. Now, a battalion in Germany in that period was about 900 men, call it a thousand men, okay? And usually about 25 officers, something like that. So we're talking about well under 20,000 men, which is a joke, right? This is a very large area of land. I mean, you look on a map, you know it's all everything west of the rhine to uh, to the english channel we're talking about a lot of land with a big big long border with 20,000 men is a joke particularly since there's more than a quarter of a million frenchmen under arms uh, victorious after world war 1 ready to come marching into i mean the, they would have loved nothing better you would have thought than to come in and throw the germans out of the rhineland nonetheless in spite of this massive violation of uh, important articles in both the Treaty of Versailles and the Treaty of Locarno, uh, they reached the River Rhine by 11 a.m. that fateful Saturday morning, and uh, and then the uh, some of the battalions crossed over to the west bank of the Rhine, and um, there they were, and. Um, <laughs> um, well, German reconnaissance discovers that thousands and thousands of French soldiers, hundreds of thousands, were congregating on the Franco-German border. Uh, the uh, Wehrmacht, the army staff, got very, very nervous, and they begged Hitler to take the forces back and evacuate them out. Um, Hitler himself was um, concerned but didn't do that, and um, he uh, he just he told the army, no, this is going to work, and um, uh, and 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 oh yeah, here's an interesting thing. He said, have any of the French soldiers actually crossed the border? This is by about lunchtime on that Saturday. They said, no, nobody's crossed the border, and um, uh, Hitler said, in that case, you got nothing to worry about. We have reoccupied the Rhineland. Now, it's very important to note that that was the point when Hitler could have been stopped with very little effort. There were only, as I said, less than 20,000 German soldiers, and there was a much larger, much more powerful French military. Um, one of the great historians of World War um, of World War Two was William Shirer, who wrote *The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich*, 
worth reading if you have any interest in that period of history worth reading and um, he writes in the book if the French would have marched across the border into the Rhineland with the intention of throwing the German army back out according to the the treaties um, the two Western democracies in March 1936 were given their last chance to halt the serious war and the rise of a militarized, aggressive, totalitarian Germany. In fact, says uh, William Shira, as we have seen Hitler admitting, had the French army come in, it would have brought the Nazi dictator and his entire regime tumbling down. The Allies let the chance slip. Um, a German officer um, who was in the chief of staff during the who was in the staff during the crisis uh, spoke later on and said, "I can tell you that for five days and five nights, not one of us closed an eye." This was a German officer speaking. We knew that if the French marched, we were done. We had no fortifications, no army to match the French. If the French had even mobilized, we should have been compelled to retire. It's incredible. The general staff, the officer said, considered Hitler's action suicidal. A German general, a German general uh, called General Guderian, interviewed by French officers after the end of the Second World War, said, if you French had intervened in the Rhineland in 1936, we would have been sunk and Hitler would have fallen. Well, what really happened? The whole world waited with bated breath on Saturday and on Sunday and on Monday, waiting to see how the French and British would react. The German troops that entered the Rhineland, those miserably small 20,000 men force, they had orders to scoot back across the Rhine bridges if the French army attacked. However, my friends, in France, the politicians were simply unable to convince their generals to act and were also unable to get any British support for a military response. So, fatefully, they did nothing. The French army, with its 100 divisions, never budged against the 20,000 lightly armed German soldiers occupying the Rhineland, even though France and Britain were both obligated by treaty to preserve the demilitarized zone of the Rhineland. And they did absolutely nothing. This was a tremendous gamble for Adolf Hitler, and it might have cost him everything. If his troops had been humiliated by their old enemies, um, he was done for. He would have had to resign. Later, Hitler would privately admit, and this stuff's recorded, the 48 hours after the march into the Rhineland were the most nerve-wracking in my whole life. If the French had marched into the Rhineland, we would have had to withdraw with our tail between our legs, for the military resources at our disposal at that time would have been wholly inadequate for even a moderate resistance. Pretty amazing stuff. And so what is the lesson here? The, the lesson here is the danger of cowardice and how failure to act 
in a in a reasonable and moderate way today can force you to act in a very much more unpleasant way tomorrow the only reason france and Germ- france and england had to fight germany in world war ii with all that that entailed was because they neglected to do a simple thing they could have literally used half a division to march across the border and eject less than 20,000, fewer than 20,000 German soldiers. That's all they had to do, and they couldn't do it. And you can imagine the headlines of the press. Um, Threat of war. Our leaders are going to allow a piece of paper to throw us into a war with Germany again. That, that was, those were the headlines. And so the government of both France and uh, England literally had no ability whatsoever to get the uh, the nation behind a simple police action that that had to happen and that didn't happen and great tragedy followed so what is the the lesson and it's a it's a lesson from ancient jewish wisdom as well i won't for now go into the biblical sources because i'm giving you a historic source for now but that is that um any time that you need to confront something that is happening that you don't want to happen you need to act boldly and decisively and firmly immediately because if you don't all you do is embolden the other side um i uh, remember two instances in my uh, rabbinic congregational life they both involved uh, parents who came to me in great distress, uh, two different disconnected set of parents, both of them had a child uh, about to uh, contract, a child who got engaged, what they considered to be a thoroughly, thoroughly unsuitable uh, marriage. And uh, in my view, although it was not relevant, in my view, they were right to be concerned about these two marriages. And um, I taught the two uh, parents separately. I taught them exactly what I'm telling you now, which is that uh, if you intend to stop this, you have to throw everything you've got at your child on day one. And the first family said to their son, immediately after leaving my office, they went home, they spoke to their son, and they said, um, we disapprove of this wedding. We will not arrive and show up at the wedding. We will play no role in the wedding. And you and your wife will not be welcome in our home. That's how strongly we feel about it. Now you can decide what to do. Well, uh, they were very courageous. And I had explained to them and I said, worst comes to the worst and the marriage goes ahead, you don't necessarily have to stick to that commitment. You know, it's, it would be understandable for you to say, we were upset, we were sorry, you know, let's move forward. Your goal now is not uh, to create a lifetime of conflict with your son and his wife. Your goal is to stop the marriage. If that succeeds, that's good. If it doesn't, then you have to deal with the outcome. Anyway, it, their son was so shocked and so horrified that uh, he he really he put a pause he uh, broke the engagement and that marriage never happened the 
other family, the other set of parents didn't have, they were like England and France. They didn't have the will in them in order to make that powerful statement, to basically drop the atom bomb. They couldn't do it. And so they continued with, we're very unhappy. We don't know if we should come to the wedding. Well, all that does is little by little, it keeps strengthening the other side. Their son just was re-strengthened. You know, he's, I'm shocked and horrified you wouldn't want to come to the wedding. But, and he, he basically, he, they didn't say they wouldn't. They just said, we don't know if we should. They, they sounded weak. So he reacted strongly and he said, well, you know what, you'll have to decide whatever, whatever you decide, you've got to decide to do. But it, all it did is it made him think to himself, you know what, I may have to get married without my parents' blessing. And uh, then they tried something else. Well, you know, if you go ahead with this, we may. And by that time, he just laughed them off. Um, he saw them as weak and uh, he went ahead. And uh, honest to goodness, I, I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't true. But um, that couple got divorced. Um, it, was a, it was a good few years. It was more than 10 years later. But it was not 10 happy years. Uh, it was 10 problematic years culminating in a divorce. So uh, these are principles uh, that we learn from history. And I tell you all of this, and that in itself, by the way, I, I hope you'll consider that already worth the price of admission, because that in itself is already a very valuable lesson, right? And that is that if you act firmly and decisively, it takes a lot of courage, no question about it. It takes real guts. But if you act firmly and decisively at the beginning of the problem, uh, you stand a much better chance of heading it off. And this is true in your family life. It's in business life. Uh, it's in extended family life. It's worthwhile really just making a note of this principle so as you really absorb it and uh, you prepare yourself to have the willpower, to have the courage to stand and boldly resist when uh, when something happens i hope you never have to deploy it but if you do it's as well to know that if you just do a succession of little objections one after the other you're bound to lose britain and france didn't even make any small objections um i think they uh, i think they spoke to the league of nations which was as useful then as the united nations is today and um and gutless completely gutless and you always end up paying for gutlessness. You end up paying for cowardice. You end up paying for lack of will and strength. You do. And so um, it, it's worth knowing. Talking of lack of will and strength, um, just a few days ago, um, in his absurd uh, and needless uh, argument with uh, with Russia, uh, American President Joe Biden um, interfering with a Russian in uh, act action with Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine have their problems. Goes back a long time. It'll continue. Uh, but no, Joe Biden, a fool, a man who literally is not smart, very, very foolish, and no integrity at all. From we, we know from the fact that uh, he plagiarized going back to, to when he was a young man 
Um, and then later on, uh, plagiarizing a Neil Kinnock speech from Neil Kinnock, the English politician. He tried to make it his own. Uh, this is uh, not a man of integrity or wisdom of any kind whatsoever. And so to um, basically to avoid looking in the correct direction of problems, namely across the Pacific and China, he looks across the Atlantic to Russia and decides to show what a big boy he is. And so he does something unprecedentedly stupid, and that is he calls uh, the head of state of another country, namely Mr. Putin, he calls him, oh, he's a killer. I mean, how silly and nonsensical. What is, th- and that has nothing to do with statesmanship whatsoever. And so, um, and now he sends some warships in towards the Black Sea in order to show that, uh, and to use his words, our commitment to Ukraine is rock solid. What does that mean? Meaningless words, right? It's, it's a sentiment, not a policy. There's no treaty. There's no commitment. There's, what does that mean exactly? Our commitment to the Ukraine is rock solid. So he sends ship. Anyway, the whole point I'm telling you about this when I'm talking about willpower, strength, boldness, courage, is that um, Mr. Putin sent a message to President Biden saying, uh, you'd better take your ships away because we will otherwise inflict serious damage on them. (laughs) So guess what President Joe Biden of the United States did? Turn the ships back. What an unbelievable display of cowardice and lack of willpower. You shouldn't have sent them in the first place, you fool. But having done so, my goodness, <laughs> pull them back when the other... I mean, who blinked? Funny that uh, the Secretary of State is Anthony Blinken, because a whole lot of blinking is going to be going on, I'll tell you that. So um, that's not all. Um What happens is that uh, on Monday, uh, just five days, four or five days ago, um, China's Air Force sent 25 fighters and bombers over the Taiwan Strait and uh, into what is called the Taiwan Air Defense Identification Zone. So... um, it's what was it i actually i have the list 14 j16 uh, and j10 fighters four h6 bombers and two y8 anti-sub warfare planes and one kj500 early warning aircraft you may remember i was one of the first to start talking uh, a long time ago on this show about china Uh, starting to build aircraft carriers. And I told you when the very first aircraft carrier was launched, well, uh, that was early on in the massive escalation of military strength that uh, China has been um, uh, doing since then. And so Monday, they send over 25 airplanes into the Taiwan Air Defense uh, ID zone. And um, it's the biggest uh, that China has has sent over towards Taiwan, I think ever, but certainly for a very long time. So um, the Taiwanese Air Force responded, of course, with their usual patrol aircraft, and they tracked the Chinese planes. But um, but that's it, right? They didn't do anything to deter them. And uh, not only that, but the um, 
the Chinese main Chinese aircraft carrier has been uh, tra- sailing around Taiwan and uh, doing all kinds of drills. So um, they also sent a warning to the uh, our carrier, the USS John McCain. What? Too bad about that name. Uh, and uh, they warned America to move its destroyer. Uh, did I say carrier? It's not a carrier. It's a destroyer. I'm sorry. As a, The reason carrier was on my mind is because the uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the, the Chinese government, in their army, they now have um, strong missile capacity to destroy aircraft carriers. Serious stuff we're talking about. These are missiles uh, that are launched from the mainland and can destroy an aircraft carrier anywhere in the uh, in the Straits of Taiwan. Uh, you know, we began to see a massive shift in the balance of power uh, when it came to aircraft carriers in the um, the short but very interesting um, war of the Falkland Islands. When, uh, when we saw relatively inexpensive missiles being used very effectively against very expensive uh, assets like aircraft carriers. And so we've always, we've always seen the aircraft carrier as foundational to the strength of the United States Navy. And indeed, in World War II, that was the case. There's no question about it. Essentially, the war in the Pacific was a war between Japanese aircraft carriers and American aircraft carriers. And so um, uh, what's happening is China is increasing the pressure on Taiwan. Now, um, Antony Blinken the State Department, um, announces to China, and again, you've got to listen to the wording. Remember what I just told you about our commitment to the Ukraine? Well, uh, the the State Department issued a uh, statement to China that Washington has a rock-solid commitment to Taiwan. That was this week they made that statement. Well, a rock-solid commitment like our rock-solid commitment to Ukraine? <laughs> what is the United States commitment to Taiwan? Um, you, you, you are probably all aware there is no treaty. There is nothing that obliges the United States to come to the defense of Taiwan. There's nothing that obliges the United States to uh, militarily defend Taiwan. The United States has maintained a very ambiguous position with respect to Taiwan, uh, but it has included arming Taiwan uh, with uh, fairly credible military assets. But um, uh, meanwhile, China, of course, is warning the United States about being very careful uh, not to cross lines with Taiwan and don't play with fire. And here's the important thing, and I'm going to ask you to sort of bear this in mind with respect to some of the things we're going to be talking about during the remainder of today's show. And that is that um, uh, China, in in their warning to the United States this week after the United States um, protested the flyover from 25 airplanes of the Chinese Air Force over Taiwan, 
China said you got to America must be very careful not to play with fire and quote there is no room for compromise or concessions in our claim to sovereignty over Taiwan you got it so it's really really very important um, China objects to any sort of official contact between the U.S. and Taiwan. And so um, what's important here is, again, this gutless response. You know, don't say stupid things if you don't, you know, don't say them. Don't say things if you don't mean them. Or in other words, as any gun owner, as any person who, who treats the Second Amendment in the United States seriously, never point a weapon at somebody if you're not willing to pull the trigger. Right? Just don't do it. Don't point the gun if you're not willing to pull the trigger. And so to say our commitment to Taiwan is rock solid, our commitment to, to, uh, uh, um, to um, the Crimea uh, and Ukraine is rock solid. Yeah, right. And then turn the warships around <laughs> and have them turn tail. Um, this, there's something that is extremely important going on right now. And, um, and that is we are witnessing, as I've spoken before, we are witnessing the end of the American century, the end of the American epoch and the beginning of the Chinese. That is where we're at. After all, how seriously do you think China takes uh, the Biden administration statement, our commitment to Taiwan is rock solid? Uh, they also heard, as everybody did, uh, the Biden administration tell uh, Russia, our commitment to the Ukraine is rock solid, and then the warships turn back. And so um, China now, without doubt, has an intention to force a retreat of the U.S. Navy in the South China Sea, which I predict we will probably see fairly soon. Because after all, um, you know, you can't take seriously people who say our commitment is rock solid when, number one, it's not spelled out, and number two, it comes at exactly the same time that the Biden administration announces the withdrawal of all American troops from Afghanistan. And uh, I think it's, it's important to realize that the, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, the Biden administration's PR was, oh, we've achieved everything we set out to achieve. It's not true. I mean, it's all lies. Um, they said, well, we've achieved the goals we set out for, said Anthony Blinken. It's time to bring our forces home. Look, um, America did not win the war in Afghanistan. Uh, our enemies there are stronger and they control more territory today than they ever have since their overthrow after 9-11 in 2001. Um, they've reconstituted themselves. They control half the country. They can cut roads to the capital, Kabul. And um, uh, our mission, and this is why we said we we're there, to build a democratic Afghanistan that could sustain itself long after we depart. Hey, big failure. Hasn't happened. Not going to happen. Uh, there's no guarantee that al-Qaeda will not reestablish itself under Taliban control in Afghanistan. And um, basically, 
uh, we're leaving behind the same, exactly the same Taliban that we drove from power 19 years ago, so or 20 years ago. So um, on the one hand, we are running away from Afghanistan. And on the other hand, we're saying, oh, take us seriously, take us seriously. No, it is perfectly clear that America lacks the courage, lacks the will, lacks the boldness to do anything at all on a military front. Okay, now, why is all this important? You know, I told you one major lesson for your lives, namely that there are times when if you don't act boldly and with courage, you'll end up fighting a much harder struggle down the road. Um, the second uh, situation I want to talk about is China and Taiwan, not in 1939, but uh, in 1971. What happened in 71? Well, President Nixon uh, made his famous overture to China, right? There'd been almost no contact since the People's um, Republic of China had been set up under the Communist Party. Uh, and all of a sudden, Richard Nixon, you know, wisely and boldly decides to open up China. He sends Henry Kissinger um, 50 years ago, right? It was July 1971. And uh, he went to Beijing. And this is the important point with a lot of things that he wanted to clarify with the Chinese. One of them was that he wanted to get from them an invitation for his boss, the president, President Richard Nixon, to visit China. Okay. Then he wanted China's help in America's ending the war in Vietnam uh, with, you know, with, with as much honor, with as little ignominy and as little disgrace as possible didn't quite pull that off. But, you know, there, there are half a million people marching in Washington that year, earlier in 1971. The anti-war movement is very strong. Uh, the New York Times was publishing the Pentagon Papers. It was hopeless. Um, and, um, and so he wanted their help in ending uh, the war. He wanted an invitation for Richard Nixon. Um, he was hoping to uh, help get the Chinese to help him put pressure on the Soviet Union. Um, he wanted to uh, get their help in slowing down the nuclear arms race. And, and th 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 there were about six or seven major issues uh, that he went to China to discuss. Uh, oh, another one was... Um, there was a uh, an independence movement in Bangladesh. A lot of stuff was going on in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, I mean. And um, President Nixon wanted some influence there. So, um, so Kissinger comes to China with a shopping list with like seven or maybe eight items that he wanted to achieve. Uh, Zhou Enlai, the Chinese president at the time, um, he responded to all of this by just repeating again and again and again one, <laughs> one simple statement. It must have driven Henry Kissinger berserk. Uh, he said, if this crucial question of Taiwan is not settled, there's nothing else to talk about. If Taiwan is not settled, there's nothing else to talk about. Taiwan settled means to reaffirm <clears throat> and establish 
utter Chinese control over Taiwan. Taiwan is part of one China. And um, it's, it's very, very interesting because all that Zhou Enlai, uh, the Chinese president, all he wanted to do was to persuade Kissinger to agree to recognize the People's Republic of China as the sole legitimate government in China and Taiwan. And to make sure that everyone understood Taiwan was an inalienable part of Chinese territory and it must be restored to the motherland. Um, He also stressed that America must withdraw all its armed forces, dismantle its military installations, and, um, and so on and so forth. So Kissinger comes with a long list of all kinds of things he wants to talk about, and China responds with only one thing. We won't talk about anything else if we can't settle Taiwan. And no matter what Henry Kissinger said, Joe and Lai just came back and said, there's nothing else to talk about if we don't get Taiwan settled. Um, I think that you might be able to see now where we're headed here. Um, when I named this show, the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. I think you can see where this lesson is coming from, uh, that to China, the main thing is Taiwan, and it's the main thing that stays the main thing all the time. Uh, back to July 71, when Henry Kissinger was visiting China, uh, he raised all these issues, Vietnam, oh, he raised Korea, uh, the Soviet Union. No matter what he raised, Zhao Enlai repeatedly returned the conversation back to Taiwan. The only question between the two of us, the record shows, he said, would the U.S. recognize the People's Republic as the sole government of China and normalize diplomatic relations? And Kissinger said, yes, as soon as the 1972 elections are over. And number two, China, uh, Zhou Enlai said, we want Taiwan to be expelled from the United Nations and the seat on the Security Council given to Beijing. And again, Kissinger said, yes. And so... Um, China, President Nixon did visit China, but Taiwan was kicked out of the United Nations. And uh, under that other great cowardly president, President Jimmy Carter, uh, the U.S. tossed away its 1954 mutual defense treaty with Taiwan and threw it out. And it wasn't until uh, 25 years later that Congress uh, came up with the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, which which says that um, the U.S. doesn't want to see any m- forceful attempt to determine the future of Taiwan. It can only be done peacefully, etc., blah, blah, blah. Again, no commitment of uh, on America to come to the defense of Taiwan, nothing like that at all. And um, all of it means absolutely nothing. Um, and to China... There's only one focus. It was then and it is now um, only one thing. And that is what is the decision? What are we going to do with Taiwan? That's all that we care about. So much so, by the way, that um, uh, in the last year of his administration, President Trump sent Mike Pompeo to meet the director of the Communist Party Office of Foreign Affairs 
uh, and they met in Hawaii in uh, June of 2016. And guess what the opening statement of China was at that meeting? I'll quote it. There is only one China in the world, and Taiwan is an inalienable part of China. The one China principle is the political foundation of China-U.S. relations. <laughs> I mean, Mike Pompeo was blindsided. Hey, we didn't come here to talk about that. Well, yes, we did. And uh, again, the main thing is that the main thing better remain the main thing. <laughs> there it is. And it's, um, it's important to get this idea. Um, what is really happening well, a, a terrific historian uh, by the name of Neil Ferguson um, mentioned that um, uh, a very interesting thing happened, right? Um, a, a, a little while ago, um, President uh, Xi of China had um, done away with the old rule that insisted that previous Chinese presidents have two terms. So he remains president indefinitely. And the reason, he said, for that was that uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China, wants um, to leave as his legacy the, re the restoration of tai Taiwan to greater China. That's, that's his dream and that's his goal. And so um, what this suggests to me is that we are looking sooner rather than later at some activity that um, has China uh, doing what's necessary to regain control over Taiwan in much the same way that uh, they regained control over Hong Kong, even though treaties insisted that that wasn't the right time, and in spite of the fact that uh, the British, and many people, oh, objections, this is terrible, blah, 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 China pays no attention at all. China looks at an America that is obsessively preoccupied with climate change and uh, the environment, and human rights. Since when is the United States the world's policeman on human rights? I think, in my view, President Trump was quite right on that. Human rights is something we care about in America, but the idea that we can project that into other countries, it's outrageous. I mean, unless we're willing to back it up with military force, that would be different. If you do not adopt American policies of human rights, we will invade you or we will bomb your cities. Okay, if you want, you know, I don't approve of it, but if that's what you want to do, at least you're not an idiot. You know, at least that makes sense. It works. But to damage relationships and to, um, and to persuade the other side that you're not serious that 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 you are uh, that you're foolish in in your approach uh, that's all this does you know so john kerry goes to talk to them about the climate and the and the pollution and they fob him off they laugh at it even the so-called paris accord gave china uh, ages of time still before they actually have to do anything they've got a free pass china builds a new coal-powered coal no, coal-powered power station every day that's right the rate of construction in china is so beyond imagining 
right now they are building a new power station every single day uh, coal-fired so um, uh, it's, it's important to understand what's going on so uh, because of um, the legacy that President Xi uh, would like to see himself leave, namely uh, restore Taiwan, and on the heels of action in, in Hong Kong, which was you know, unpopular around the world, it made no difference to the Chinese. Uh, in the light of their increased aggressiveness in the South China Sea, um, in the light of the evident and obvious weakness of the Biden administration, um, my guess is that we're going to see China act on Taiwan sooner rather than later, sometime in the next couple of years, three, maybe next, the next three or four years. That's what I anticipate. Now, uh, what is it going to be? Is it going to be China applying a, uh, a, a sort of full-scale blockade, or will it be an amphibious invasion? Uh, would it be the reverse of the Cuban Missile Crisis of the Cold War, but with the roles reversed? Would it be um, a Chinese naval blockade of the island, uh, or would it include an invasion? Or would it be um, uh, a heavy economic uh, pressure? And all this is very important because Taiwan is the world's main supplier of semiconductors, right? So whether, whether it doesn't matter, you want to build cars, you want to build computers. I mean, there's nothing today. Uh, you want to build a refrigerator or a stove, whatever, a washing machine, everything you can think of uses semiconductors today. And uh, the main source of supply is Taiwan. So uh, when I speak about seeing something unpleasant happen in the next few years, uh, the implications are very serious. There's no question about it. But um, uh, the and and the results, by the way, like if let's imagine that I'm right, China goes ahead and decides the time has come to establish its dominance and to establish once and for all that we're entering the Chinese epoch. We're saying goodbye to the American epoch. After all, Chinese the Chinese economy uh, reaches equivalence to the American within the next few years. Uh, nobody thinks it'll take longer than seven or eight years, max. Most people, including me, think it'll happen before that. And so with growing uh, military power and, and aggressiveness and growing economic power and growing Western weakness, um, it, it seems to me likely that something will happen sooner rather than later. Now, um, if it happens, okay, what is it signal? And and if America does nothing, which I don't think, right? I mean, uh, will Biden be the one who suddenly is going to be willing to plunge America into a military action? England and France were not willing to do that in 1936, where it was much more obvious. And I don't see any reason to be... Uh, optimistic about Biden's courage or integrity on this. It's not going to happen, right? Not going to happen. So um, at that point, um, losing basically America doing nothing as China takes Taiwan, that would be a signal to the entire world, certainly to all of Asia and the rest of the world, that we are now at the end 
of the uh, of American dominance. Uh, the the whole Pacific region will shift its focus from America to China. Um, it would uh, it would show that China's return to primacy in Asia after what they see as 200 years of humiliation, all of this is going on in China right now. We're moving, and this, you know, this is President Xi's great legacy. After 200 years of international humiliation, we are finally going to regain our position of primacy, not only in Asia, but the world as well. Um, You know, what would we see happen then? Um, Yeah, like I said, semiconductors is a huge issue, a run on the dollar, uh, U.S. treasuries. It's going to be a big deal. There's no question about it. And uh, it's one that we should certainly be aware of. Again, um, I want to stress that, uh, that there are very good and solid reasons for believing as I do. Uh, For instance, Admiral Philip Davidson, who is the U.S. military commander for the Indo-Pacific region, um, spoke to Congress recently. I don't think anybody was paying any attention, but uh, this is a guy staking his military reputation, saying that he believed China would try to reclaim Taiwan by force within the next six years. That's an important thing right? And when that happens, all that the President Biden is likely to do is bleat protest, whoa, 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 blah, 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 uh, none of which will mean anything whatsoever. Because, my friends, something I've, I've spoken many times before on this show, power is more important than paper. You can wave around paper agreements as much as you like, but power is what makes the decisions. You may as well know it. Um, it would be nice to believe, oh, we human beings have moved beyond and we've evolved to a time of peaceful paper understanding. No, that's not true. It's complete nonsense. And, um, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't see it in those terms. Um, nothing has changed in how China's current leaders uh, view the reunification of Taiwan. You've got to realize that to them... Um, China is, uh, excuse me, Taiwan is an embarrassment, right? You've got to remember that to China, Taiwan is the island where those, the side that lost the civil war in 1949-1950, at that period when they lost against the communists, that's where they fled. And now they set up this, this little government on this little island and foreign powers, again, foreign powers, uh, prop them up there in Taiwan. This is a big embarrassment to China. And uh, and I, I've only fully understood this in the last year or so as I've, I've spent time and energy trying to study and understand exactly how the Chinese view um, their role in the world, how they view the last 200 years, how they view Taiwan, and how they view the United States of America. Um, you know, they are rising to global power. There's no question about it. That's part of the dream. It's part of their of what they intend doing. And obviously, they have to regain control over what they consider to be their rightful territory. Uh, they've cracked down in Hong Kong. They've cracked down on the Ujurs in Xinjiang. They've cracked down on Tibet. 
they ignore Western protests about human rights violations. And uh, all of that just shows that, in my view, President Xi uh, views the United States as weakened and distracted by silly things like the climate and, uh, and other matters. And um, he realizes that there is a window of opportunity during the Biden administration, a window of opportunity that I don't think they're going to want to miss. And so um, what, is, uh, what is likely to happen? Well, that's what I think is likely to happen. I really do. And, uh, and I, I think that, that the reasons for China to act now are much more compelling than the reasons for China to wait. Now is the right time for them to make a move on Taiwan. I don't think that uh, you'll open your paper to find uh, a report that bombs are falling on Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. I don't think that at all. Um, but uh, what I think is we might find that China occupies, they, uh, they send their navy in to occupy their two little islands off Taiwan, um, between Taiwan and China, uh, Kwemoy and Matsu. I may be mispronouncing, but um, they were claimed by Taiwan, and, um, and uh, Taiwan likes to uh, assert that they control these two islands. Um, there was there was some action back in 1958 there, but they've basically been accepted as Taiwanese. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think it's quite possible that China would take over those islands as an opening ploy in the action. Um, what would America do in response? I don't think anything. Um, I don't even think they would do sanctions because we're too, I mean, our trade with China is too important. And the European Union would not join in on sanctions, so it would be meaningless anyway. So I'm pretty sure the response would not be sanctions. And um, and and for them, you know, there's no advantage in waiting. Right now, um, Taiwan is waiting for America to make good on the supply of military equipment, and it, it may be uh, some years away. And so... Taiwan is not at its best position that it's been in, uh, in terms of its own defense. Um, number two, I would also say that one of China's concerns is the growing strength of India. So why wait? Why wait for a, a change in the balance of power between China and India? China will obviously always remain stronger for the foreseeable future. But right now, they don't have to worry about India. I'm not sure that's true in 10 years' time. I'm just stressing why, if I were President Xi of China, I'm saying to myself, you know what, it's time already. I don't know for how long I'm going to stay president. I want to leave a legacy. Uh, we've, we did well with Hong Kong. Nobody stopped us there. Um, uh, we, we have very high prestige in China because of how we handled the uh, Wuhan pandemic. Uh, the whole communist party in china that party structure is is in a very activist mood it's uh, it's building infrastructure around the world it's it's just a, it's just a good time good time um you know could china say yeah, you know it will take care of taiwan in 20 years yeah it could happen i just don't think it's very likely because uh, 
Biden is a godsend to China right now, an absolute godsend. They are laughing at him making war with Russia. <laughs> I mean, it's a joke. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I think is happening. Now, why do I tell you all this? Not because I think you should invest or, or you know, or sell short Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company. Uh, nothing like that. Um, those things are, are are largely outside our sphere of influence. We're we're ordinary people, us happy warriors, and um, and the reason I'm telling you all of this is because world events will take place. They will be what they will be, right? Uh, I think you might think a little bit about what might be the results in in practical terms of a Chinese takeover of Taiwan. And we can each think about how this might affect our lives, our business, uh, what we do, where we do it. So, you know, think about that. But here's the main reason I've told you all of this. The main reason I've told you all of this is because to China, the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. They have been so clear. They've been clear for 50 years that the only thing they'll talk about with the United States is Taiwan. They started off successfully. They got Kissinger and Nixon to throw Taiwan out of the UN and replace it with China. Uh, they, Billy, Jimmy Carter managed to... Uh, uh, they persuaded him to get rid of the uh, the treaty with Taiwan. Everything is, they are staying absolutely focused on it. Do you know how many Chinese students there are in the United States uh, right now? Nearly 400,000 Chinese students, right? Over 300,000, nearly 400,000 Chinese students. And these are not Chinese Americans. These are Chinese students studying technology, mathematics, physics, biology, and going back to China. Right? That's a pretty important reality. Um, China has given uh, over a billion dollars to American universities over the last couple of years. That's a lot of control and a lot of influence. And indeed, there is influence, considerable influence. And so throughout all of this, China has successfully insisted that Taiwan is all that matters. You can't keep on saying that if you're not willing to take action. And that's why I think they're perfectly willing to take action. And here is the lesson for each and every one of us. The lesson is that the main thing is that the main thing must remain the main thing. Your main thing is your life. Well, that's a vague statement. That's a little bit like America telling the U. Oh, our commitment to the Ukraine is rock solid. Yes, Mr. Biden, sure it is. Um, and I say, well, the most important thing, the the main thing for you is your life. Well, yeah, okay, fine. What does that mean? Well, uh, the entirety of your life, in practical terms, boils down to the five F's. Right now, hear me on this very clearly. When I say the main thing for you is your life, I mean the main thing for you is the five Fs. Because the five Fs, and you know how I depict them graphically, right, on the circumference of a circle. Five equidistant points on the circumference of a circle. One of them labeled 
friendship, one of them labeled finances, one of them labeled um, uh, faith, friendship, finances, faith, one of them labeled family, and one of them labeled fitness, everything having to do with your health. Those five points on your circle can be connected to one another with straight lines. And that way, each one is linked to each of the other four because they do constitute a single unified depiction of your life. Your finances, your family, your friendships, yes, your faith, and your fitness, everything having to do with your health. Those things all together are one single entity that I call the main thing. And so I want to stress to you the importance of not allowing political news, even if it were the invasion of Taiwan, not allowing those things to deter you and to deflect you from the focus on the five F's. Focus on the five F's. Make sure you are progressing positively in each of those areas. Make sure you are nurturing your friendships and adding new friends to your friendship circle. Make sure you are acting in a focused way, in a very positive way on your finances. Make sure that you are focusing on building up revenue and reducing debt. Make sure that you are nurturing your family. Make sure you are investing in your marriage. Make sure you are investing in your children. Please don't believe that sending them off to school, sending them off to um, a GIC, a government indoctrination camp, is fulfilling your responsibility to your children. Your children are your legacy. Your children are you. Your children give you immortality. Yes, family is something that also requires your focus. Your faith, I don't have to tell you how important that is. And many of you need to work hard on that because you don't feel your faith. Fine, well then you have to work on it. But we need faith just like we need family. Right? If you don't have a family yet, right? if, you're, if you're not married, there are steps that can be taken. And I've written about them and I teach about them. And so this is all of what I call your holistic self. I speak about your holistic self if you want to understand how to make sure that you remain happy and fulfilled and positive and optimistic and moving forward. It's by keeping a day-to-day track of your five F's. That's what's important. And uh, if you haven't yet done it, please go to the website and download your free copy of The Holistic You. It's an ebook I've prepared, which lays out in uh, considerably more detail this understanding that the totality of your life is most clearly understood by resolving it into its five component parts, your family, your faith your finances, your friendships, and your fitness, right? Your, your physical health. 
all of these things. And it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. But I give you instruction. I guide you. I walk with you along this journey. Don't neglect any of the five. Keep in mind this picture of the circle with friendship, finances, faith, family, and fit fitness written on five equidistant points around the circle, all connected with one another by straight lines. And you will begin to see how this works. So uh, do go ahead and go to rabbidaniellappin.com. It's the website. Uh, you'll also find it at youneedarabbi.com. And uh, make sure you get your free download of The Holistic You. It's an important ebook. I really want you, particularly at this time where I think we're facing considerable dangers in the United States and in every country on earth, uh, it is a, a, a time that is incendiary. It's a time where things are happening. This is not a time of laid-back tranquility. And so, particularly at a time like that, there are opportunities, and those can best be seized and exploited if your five Fs are in good shape. I cannot stress this enough. And the whole reason I told you the Chinese story is not because I'm predicting that China's going to act on Taiwan. Yes, I think that will happen. But it's not going to have as much impact on your life as a dramatic embrace of your five Fs would have on your life. And so that's what I mean. In the same way that to China, Taiwan is the main thing and it stayed the main thing, so it is that for you, your five Fs are the main thing. And it's important that the main thing stays the main thing. That is the idea. At uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, you can also write to us. You can also read back editions of Thought Tools, of Susan's Musings, our Ask the Rabbi column. Um, there was an, the latest one is an interesting one. I, I think you'd find it interesting. And, um, and, and there's certainly been a number of comments from people who've written in about it. So all of that on rabbidaniellappin.com. So head over there, write to me. I love to hear from you. You know I like knowing where you are listening from. And uh, I greatly enjoy putting more pins in my map as our listenership spreads far and wide across this great planet of ours. And uh, again, thank you for spreading the word of this show. I appreciate it very much indeed, getting it out there, increasing the people who are listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where we are now as far as we can go for this week. And so uh, just stay firmly focused on your five Fs as we move ahead to the upcoming week. And uh, I, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And you know what those five things are, the important thing that never changes. Have a wonderful week, stay in good health, and work on good times with your family and your faith, your finance, your friendships, and yes, your physical fitness and your health. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.